I want us to, uh, if we could, turn to uh, the book of Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 13. We were here last week. We began to consider some things from this portion of Scripture. I uh, felt compelled to come back uh, to this particular text again this morning. For we just really began to scratch the surface as to what is found here and just how greatly important it is to every one of us, to each one of you, to myself, or to anyone else. What we read and what we hear and what we see in the text that I'm going to read in just a moment here this morning is of ultimate importance. And I pray that God will give us all an understanding of that this morning and, and uh, that we will avail ourselves of what is recorded here for us and that God will use it in our hearts and our lives to make all the difference in the world in our lives. And truly what we find here does indeed make the difference. Acts chapter 13 <coughs> Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39 this morning. We read a greater portion of this last week, but I want us to confine our our reading here at this time to verses 38 and 39 of Acts chapter 13. And I will just say that uh, my subject this morning is simply forgiveness. Forgiveness. Look with me now, if you would, at Acts chapter 13, verse 38 and verse 39. Let it be known unto you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed or justified from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. Let me just read that first verse again, verse 38, before we pray. Let it be known. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed unto you. Would you bow with me now uh, before the Lord as we seek Him and His blessing upon the time we're about to spend together in His Word. Let's pray. Gracious, loving, heavenly Father, how grateful once again we are to be here together, to worship You, to sing Your praises. But Father, especially now to just be still, knowing that you're God. To be still and listen for your voice as you would speak to us through your word this morning. And Father, it is the desire of my heart that you would do just that. That you would be pleased to speak to our heart. Speak that which, Lord, will honor and glorify your name 
and that which will be for our eternal good. Help us, Lord. We are truly a poor and needy people. But your grace, your grace, O oh God, is sufficient to meet our every need. And so we're grateful and we're thankful and we pray your blessing upon the time that we're to spend together in these next few minutes. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' precious name, we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, we're going to be looking at the subject of forgiveness this morning. Uh, I want us, if we could this morning, uh, to seek to be attentive. It's, it's not that... It, I think it's important that you are attentive to me because certainly that's not important. But it is important that you're attentive to God's Word. That is important. Of ultimate importance to each one of us that we be attentive to the voice of God when He's pleased to speak as I trust God will speak to our hearts here this morning. And so I want us to think this morning if, if we could about what forgiveness means. And not only about what forgiveness means, but about what it means to be forgiven. I don't know if you've recently, or perhaps even ever, given some serious consideration and thought to what forgiveness means. Biblically speaking, as we read of forgiveness in God's Word. What does it mean? And... What does it mean to be forgiven? It's important that we see this, that we understand this, that we know uh, these things. And, and I'm convinced in my own heart, my own mind, that if we can come to even uh, a small degree of understanding in regard to what biblical forgiveness really is and what it means to us or what it should mean to us, that it will so fill our heart with joy, much like perhaps the joy that Peter was talking about in First Peter, uh, chapter one and verse eight, I believe it is, where he speaks of joy inexpressible or joy unspeakable and full of glory. Uh, I'm convinced. I'm convinced in my own heart and mind that if we can come to understand what forgiveness really is and what it means that our hearts will experience that kind of joy. And so it is my prayer this morning that we can, as we consider this subject of forgiveness, understand these things about it that God would have us to know. Uh, earlier at the beginning of the hour, Justin read for us a portion of Scripture from the first chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah. And I hope you were listening closely uh, to what was read there in these first 18 verses. Uh, and I'm praying that perhaps maybe there's someone besides myself here this morning uh, that God really spoke to through this portion of Scripture. I was reading this this passage of Scripture or it's two or three days ago. I don't even remember for sure when it was now. But I know I, as I was reading Isaiah chapter 1 here, 
and these first 18 verses especially, uh, that I saw myself in verses 4 and 5. Listen to these verses again, if you would. And I know here that, uh, uh, that the text speaks specifically about a nation and not about an individual. And of course, this is uh, the prophecy of Isaiah for God's people, Israel, the nation of Israel. But it really spoke to my heart as an individual. Verses 4 and 5 here, where it says, Oh, sinful nation. And it was as if God was saying, Oh, sinful man that you are. A people or a person laden or, or burdened down or weighted down with iniquity. And iniquity, uh, a more clear definition of iniquity is the absence of holiness. That's what iniquity is. It's like sin. It's like transgression and all. But it specifically speaks to an absence of holiness. Something that God demands. He demands it. God said, I am holy. You must be holy. Without holiness, no man shall see the Lord, the Scripture says. Oh, sinful individual. A person laden or weighted down with iniquity. Offspring of evildoers. Children. An individual who deals corruptly. Someone who has forsaken the Lord. Someone who has despised the Holy One of Israel. And because of that, he's utterly estranged. And it was as if God spoke directly to my heart and said, why will you be struck down? Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? Your whole head is sick. Your whole heart is faint. What a description. What a description that was. To me, it was as, as if I was reading my biography. Last night, Sometime during the night. And there were several times that I was awake. But at least on one of those times, if not several times, in those waking moments, my, my thoughts went back to what the prophet Isaiah has written here. And how verses 4 and 5 just so spoke to my heart as if it was written specifically about me. And, and it was almost as if I could see myself in a police station somewhere. I don't know, maybe something like, like where Justin works over there. Uh, I don't know. But, but I could see myself in a police station and, and seated at a desk over here was an officer. And uh, he was an artist. And his primary job or responsibility was to sit and listen to uh, the testimony, the witness of some who had seen a crime committed. And as they described the individual to this artist uh, who had committed, they, de they described to him 
this individual that committed the crime and this artist then would take the description that this witness would give and he would begin uh, to draw a picture or paint a picture, uh, a sketch of an individual that might be helpful in locating this one. And as I watched at a distance, I walked closer to the illustration that he was putting on the paper there. And the more I looked, the more that picture looked like me. And all the guilt that gripped my heart and the fear that gripped my heart, knowing that if someone looked up and saw me and recognized me in that picture, that I was in trouble. And so I ran, looking for a place to escape to. And I saw a door and I ran toward that door. And as I was passing through that door, I looked up above and there was written above that door, the honorable, most holy and righteous judge of all the earth. And there, in that room, I stood before that judge. And on the desk in front of him was a list. A list of all the sins that I've committed. And I was guilty. I was guilty. And there was nothing I could do but confess. I'm guilty. I'm guilty. And I deserve, I deserve whatever punishment is to come to me. Then I looked up into the eyes of this church. Eyes full of love and compassion. And he spoke to me the words found in verse 18 of chapter 1 of Isaiah. And he said, Come, yeah, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And I thought to myself, how can this be? How can this be? The one so guilty as I am. One whose sins are like scarlet and red like crimson. How can it be that my sin to be made like white as snow or like wool. How can it be? When God is so holy and so pure, 
that he will make known to the prophet Habakkuk in Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 13 that he is of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong or sin or wickedness. God is so pure that He refuses. He will not look upon sin. Have you ever had something brought before your eyes that was so despicable that you just could not even look at it? This is the way God sees sin. And the Scriptures are so clear. So clear about what God actually thinks about sin. Would you look with me for just a moment back to the book of Psalms, chapter 5 to begin with. Psalm chapter 5, verses 4 through 6. Here the psalmist says of God, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. This is what God thinks about sin. And those who sin. We turn on over to the 11th psalm. Psalm 11 and in verse 5, here the psalmist says, The Lord tests the righteous, but His soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. And as I saw myself before that honorable and most holy and righteous judge, and saw myself as the sinner that I was, I found myself just like David as he records in the 51st Psalm, crying out, Have mercy upon me. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Remember how David prayed? Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Your steadfast love, according to Your abundant mercy, Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. God hates sin. Perhaps you'll recall that following man's disobedience in the Garden of Eden, some time had passed, and folks were multiplying upon the face of the earth. They were sinful. And the Scripture tells us in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 that when God looked down Upon man, he saw that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart 
was only evil continually before. All men, all men, the thoughts of their heart, only evil continually before him. And we read the prophet Jeremiah telling us in the 17th chapter of Jeremiah in verse 9 that the heart is deceitful and above all things desperately wicked. That's all of our hearts when we come into this world. That's everyone's natural heart. Corrupt. Corrupt and wicked in the eyes of God. It's just as clear that not only is sin something that God hates and despises, and it's so offensive to Him that He will not even look upon it because of its offensiveness, it's just as clear that sin has its dire or horrible consequences. If you care to turn with me to Romans, the second chapter, beginning with verse 6 and reading down through verse 8. Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Here we read as the Apostle Paul writes, He will render, that is, God will render to each one according to His works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Wrath and fury. A little bit later in his letter to these folks at Rome, he says in verse 12 of chapter 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death, through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. And you are familiar, I'm sure, with Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, where Paul says the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The consequence, the horrible consequence of sin is death. And that death is not just the ceasing of physical life. That death there is eternal death. It is eternal separation from God. In torment. In hell. Seeking to pay the wages of sin. The consequences of our sin. And this is undoubtedly true. Cannot be anything but the truth. What God thinks about sin and what He says are its consequences for the simple reason that it's God's Word. It's God's Word and God cannot lie. So what God says about what he thinks of sin and its consequences is the truth, isn't it? Oh, but thankfully, 
just like verse 18 of Isaiah chapter 1 tells us that our sin, which is like scarlet and red like crimson, can be white as a freshly driven snow or like the wool on a sheep. Thankfully, God's Word also tells us, for example, what we read in Isaiah chapter 31, verses 31 and following. Isaiah 31, verse 31 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother say, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. Now listen, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Or how about chapter 33 of Jeremiah and verse 8? 33 and verse 8, where he says, I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me. God says this, I will cleanse them from the guilt of all their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. And perhaps you're familiar with other portions very similar to this, such as Psalm 103 and verse 12, where there the psalmist tells us that God will remove our sin as far as the east is the west. East is from the west from us. God will take our sin away as far as the east is from the west. Or perhaps the prophet Micah, chapter 7 of Micah's prophecy in verse 19, where there uh, the prophet Micah says that God will bury our, sea, uh, our sin in the depths of the sea. In the depths of the sea. Or Isaiah, again in chapter 38 and verse 17, where there Isaiah says that God will put our sin behind his back where he'll never see it again he'll never see it again when I think of verses like that once again I find in myself asking myself how can this be how can this be That God who is just and righteous and holy 
says that he hates sin. It's offensive to him. And the consequences of sin is death. The soul that sins shall surely die, the Scripture says. As we said a while ago, the wages of sin is what? Death? How can it be? How can it be that my sin can be forgiven and forgotten by God? But our text in Acts chapter 13 tells us how. Doesn't it? Our text, chapter 13 of Acts, and verse 38 and 39 tells us how. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed or justified from everything from which you could not be freed or justified by the law of Moses. So how can it be? Through this man. Through this man. The Apostle Paul, who wrote or spoke those very words in our text, also spoke to this in his letter to the Romans, the third chapter of Romans, beginning with verse 26. Or beginning with verse 23, I'm sorry. Where he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes all of us, doesn't it? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified or declared not guilty by His grace, His unmerited favor, as a gift, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the price that was paid by Jesus. The debt that we owe. The debt we owe. (laughs) Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of Him that believes in Jesus. Thank God. Thank God there is forgiveness of sin. And John, the Apostle John in his first epistle, the first chapter in verse 9, makes it so clear. He says, if we confess our sins. You know what it means to confess our sins? That word confess, literally, the word that's translated confess in the Greek, literally means to say the same thing. To say the same thing. And so for us to confess our sin to God is for us to say the same thing to God that He said to us. Admitting 
that we're sinners, as God said we are. And John says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all our unrighteousness. Why? Why would God do such a thing? Because Jesus paid the price for our sin. Jesus paid the price fully for our sin. I think it was Spurgeon who said, a debt fully paid is no longer a debt. Did you hear that? A debt that is fully paid is no longer a debt. The hymn writer, that last hymn that we sang this morning, did you listen to the words closely of Jesus paid it all? I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Lord, now indeed I find thy power and thine alone can change a leper spot and melt the heart of stone. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's Lamb. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Why? Why would holy God forgive my sin? Because the debt's been paid. I owe the debt. The wages of sin is death. But there is one who took my place, paid the price I owed. He paid it all. He paid it all. And a debt fully paid is no longer a debt. We used to sing a chorus, the words of which say, He paid a debt He did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, the whole day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt that I could never pay. It is a fact. It is a fact that God will pardon and forgive sin. But it's also a fact that He only does it one way. He only does it one way. And it's through 
this man. This man spoken of here in Acts chapter 13. Through this man. And only through this man. Can sin be forgiven. Well, just who is this man? We began last week to look at this. But we had to rush and we had to hurry through this. And so I felt that we should come back to it and consider just who this man is that Paul is talking about here in Acts chapter 13, verse 38, when he says that through this man is the forgiveness of sin. Well, within the context of this passage, we will see that this man is one who was promised. One who was promised. All through the Old Testament, there were promises about this man coming. It's called the Messiah. It's called the Messiah. And in Acts chapter 13 and verse 23, if we go back just a little ways here, we find in the context that the Scripture says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. As He promised. Now as I said, all through the Old Testament, this promise is heard time and time again. Let me just take you, if, if I could, uh, to Isaiah again, the prophecy of Isaiah, this time to chapter 11. We'll look at just one example here of where we find that this man Paul speaks of is one who was promised. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11. Let's read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll drop down to verse 10. He says in verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 11, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And verse 10 says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be righteous. We look in chapter 12, uh, the first three verses especially, says, you will say in that day, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger is turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And with joy will you draw water from the wells of salvation. Who is he talking about there? This man. This man to whom forgiveness is proclaimed. He's one who is promised. And He is the Savior. The Savior. Isn't that what verse 23 of Acts chapter 13 said? Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. A Savior. Jesus. Not just a Savior though. The Savior. There is no other. There is no other. If we go back just a few chapters here in the book of Acts to chapter 4, 
Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. By which we must be saved. No other name. No other one. He is the only Savior there is. This man is Jesus, the Savior. Oh, but this man is more than just a man, isn't he? He's more than just a man. He is the God-man. The God-man. He is the Son of God. The eternal Son of God. The everlasting Son of God. The prophet Isaiah uh, prophesied about Him. Once again, it said uh, in the prophecy there that a child shall be born, a son shall be given. Oh, the Messiah came into this world as the Christ child, born in a manger there in Bethlehem. But that child was the eternal Son of God. The eternal Son of God. Again in Acts chapter 13, verse 32 and 33, He says, And we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, You are my Son today. I have begotten You. Very familiar verse, John chapter 3 and verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. His Son. His eternal Son, the everlasting Son of God, God gave. Back in the Gospel according to Luke, when the angel came to Mary to tell her that she was going to have a child, remember what that angel said to her? Look with me in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 and following. Luke chapter 1. Verse 30. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. This man is more than just a man. He's the Son of God. He's the Son of God. He's that one that John speaks of as he begins his gospel account in John chapter 1 saying, In the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God the same, was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And verse 14 says, The Word who was with God, who is God, who created all things, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And we read of Him a little bit later, after He had begun His ministry, on one occasion in the third chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew when Jesus was baptized. You remember, a voice was heard from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And a little bit later in the 17th chapter of Matthew at the Mount of Transfiguration where Peter and James and John were blessed with the privilege of seeing Christ transfigured before them or the glory of God in Christ revealed before their very eyes. They fell on their face. They fell on their face in recognition of the glory of God in Christ, in Jesus. And they heard a voice once again saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Hear Him. God was pleased with His Son at His baptism, at His transfiguration. And God was pleased with His Son at Calvary. where Jesus died on a cross as a substitute for sinners, paying the price for their sin. God was pleased. God was pleased. Pleased with His person, who He was, and also pleased with what He was doing, what He did in dying for sinners like you and I. And the proof, the proof that God was pleased with what His Son did there on the cross when He died and was buried in a tomb, the proof that God was pleased was what? His resurrection. His resurrection. God raised Him from the dead. You see, He paid fully the price for sin, which was death. He died. And when He died, the death that He died, once and for all, fully paid 
the price for sin. And therefore, death no longer had a hold upon him because the debt was paid. The debt was paid. Now, if you and I, because of our unbelief or our lack of trust in the Lord Jesus, if we pay the price for sin ourselves, we'll be doing it for eternity. We'll be experiencing death for eternity because we can never pay the price. We can never pay the debt that Jesus did. Fully paid the price perfectly for our sin. And God was pleased. God was satisfied. You know, when the prophet Isaiah prophesied about the suffering servant in Isaiah chapter 53, that God would lay upon him the iniquity of us all, that he'd be bruised for our transgressions. In other words, that he would pay the price for our sin by dying in our place. You remember what the Scripture tells us there in verse 10 of Isaiah 53? I believe the first part of verse 11. He will see the travail of his soul and what? And be satisfied. Be satisfied. Hmm. Therefore, therefore, there is forgiveness of sin through this man. Through this man. And the Apostle Paul will write in the fifth chapter of his letter to the church at Rome, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him. Justified. Declared righteous. Declared not guilty. Because of Christ. Who He is and what He did. Therefore, God could be both just and justifier of sinners like you and I. Because Christ paid the price. God, you see, would not just sweep our sin under a carpet, if you will, and ignore it as if it were not there. No, the wages of sin is death. The price had to be paid. And if you don't put your faith and your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did to have paid the price for your sin, you will pay for it yourself for all of eternity. Sinners can be forgiven because God is satisfied with His Son and the death He died in the place of sinners. And so Paul would go on to write in the 8th chapter of his letter to those folks at Rome, there is therefore now no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who place their faith in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Jesus paid it all. This man paid fully the price for sin. Do you trust Him? Have you put your faith in Him, who He is, and what He did? There's no other hope for sinners. No other hope for forgiveness. No other hope for pardon. Except through this man. Let me conclude this morning by sharing with you something from R.C. Sproul. Dr. Sproul said, in putting forth Jesus as our propitiation or our satisfaction or satisfaction in the eyes of God for what He did in our place, In putting forth Jesus as our propitiation, the Lord vindicated His righteousness, ensuring that He remains just, even as He becomes the justifier of those who believe in Christ Jesus. God provides what sinners need to be righteous in His sight without compromising His justice. When we are accounted righteous in Christ, justice is still done, but we do not feel the punishment of sin that it deserves. Instead, Jesus suffered in our place. Dr. Spohl went on to say, in the drama of justification, God remains just. He does not set aside His justice. He does not waive His righteousness. He insists upon it. If all He did was maintain His righteousness without extending the imputation of that righteousness to us, He would not be the justifier. But He is both just and justifier. Which is the marvel of the Gospel. The marvel of the Gospel. And only in biblical religion does God remain just when He forgives people. All that He does forgive. And justice has been served when Jesus died in our place. Do you believe it? There's no other hope for you. No other way. No other forgiveness except through this man. Who he is and what he did for sinners like you and I. Oh, may God speak to your heart this great truth that there is forgiveness of all your sins. 
through this man. Jesus Christ. God's Son. The Savior. Would you bow with me in prayer?